Turn with me, if you would, this morning to Revelation and chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And verse number 7, I'd like to read down to verse 13, Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7. We have recorded for us these words. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven. And my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Some time ago, we commenced a study on the seven churches in Revelation. And uh, we took a break from that because of our Reformation month. And uh, we have two left, which, uh, Lord willing, we will uh, complete Philadelphia today and next week Laodicea before we uh, move into uh, a month on a different study. But it has been, if you can remember back, uh, a rich study already. And today we come to the sixth of the seven churches. And uh, again, as we have done in the past, I have uh, a bit of a PowerPoint uh, by way of an introduction for us this morning. Just to remind us where we have gone and what we have already looked at, it is the letters to seven churches. We've entitled the series Correspondence from Christ. We've looked at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis. Now we come to Philadelphia and then we have Laodicea as the last of the seven. And so we've already talked about the fact that the Apostle John is here banished to the Isle of Patmos when he receives the vision that is the entire book of Revelation before us. And uh, in this case, he then writes or records what the Lord Jesus puts together as a letter to the church at Philadelphia. And you'll notice it's a little bit of a a circuit here. We have Ephesus and Smyrna, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum, and then down to the right, Philadelphia and Laodicea in that order. And so the recipients... The direct letter or the direct recipient of this letter, as with all the others, is the angel of the church there, uh, not in Sardis, in Philadelphia. I didn't update that. I apologize. Uh, We've already discussed the fact that this refers to the leadership or the head, uh, the person, uh, the elder of the church there. This particular assembly is only mentioned by name here in the book of Revelation, and we have no indication of how it came into existence None whatsoever that I can find in the scripture or even in uh, Christian history. How it happened, what a wonderful thing. We don't even know, but we know that the Lord Jesus established a church there in Philadelphia. And so here are some, uh, some pictures of uh, uh, the modern day with their archaeological digs and sites and so forth. But Philadelphia resided in the greater region of Lydia. You might recall that word Lydia. Uh, we know some people who've come from Lydia in the book of Acts. It was situated 28 miles southeast of Sardis, our previous church. This city was built by Attalus Philadelphus, who was the king of Pergamos, whose name the city bears. Can't even see that past the flowers. The city of Philadelphia was tormented by regular earthquakes, resulting in constant reconstruction and a lack of defence mechanisms. 
The entire city was levelled by an earthquake in 17 AD and Emperor Tiberius rebuilt it shortly thereafter. So none of that's all that uh, uh, informative in one sense when it comes to this, but this plays an important part into the letter that Jesus wrote to this particular church. And then we see uh, that the cost of repairing this often shaken city taxed heavily upon the citizens and left most in that region in a place of poverty. This is a poor church and a poor region because of the great taxes placed upon them. We also see that Philadelphia stood upon a terrace 650 feet above the sea. Behind it are the volcanic cliffs to which the Turks have given the name of Devit or in Inkwells. On the other side of the city, the land is exceedingly fertile uh, and there was produced a wine of whose excellence the celebrated Roman poet Virgil wrote. This was a very, very uh, rich country for vineyards on the other side. And then there's this uh, name, I'm going to move this, Al-Ashiha, which is the new Turkish name of this region, uh, is still considered today a Christian town. One fourth of its modern population is Greek and a Greek bishop still makes his home there. Uh, one of the chief modern industries is a licorice factory. So if you like licorice, this is the place to go. Okay. In the fields about the city, the natives dig for the roots. Let's talk about the spiritual leadership for just a moment of this particular church at the time. Church history records that the Apostle John ordained a Demetrius as the bishop of this church. Now, again, this is not biblical, so we are not sure exactly of how that all works. But in the second century AD, Ignatius wrote an epistle to the church, which was addressed to the bishop, although no name is given. Okay, and these all connect with each other, with the other churches as well. In the same century, 12 Philadelphians suffered martyrdom at the same time as Polycarp of Smyrna. You recall Polycarp from one of our earlier discussions. 12 of these people from the church suffered martyrdom. That's a known fact in history. Its name, Philadelphia, signifies brotherly love. And it, along with Smyrna, are the only churches which receive unmixed praise from the Lord Jesus Christ. Every other church is given some form of uh, condemnation in the sense of you're doing this wrong, you need to get this right. Not this church and not the church at Smyrna. And so this morning, we're going to look at Philadelphia, the faithful church. The faithful church. So join me as we look here in this text, line by line. Verse number seven begins. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. The first thing I would like us to note this morning as we consider this particular subject of the church in Philadelphia is the characteristics of Christ. What a great start to look simply at what the Bible says about Christ here in this portion. And before I do that, let me pray and ask for his help. Lord, thank you again that we can open your word this morning. Uh, I'm in desperate need of your help uh, of knowing where we should go with this portion of scripture exactly, uh, what applications to make. And thank you for what you've taught me in private. I pray you would uh, uh, be uh, able to direct our thinking this morning to the place that you would have us each to go. Uh, convict and challenge us as is necessary, we pray. And particularly in this first point, the characteristics of Christ. I'm not sure if there's a greater subject in all the world. Help us to see the weight and the glory of uh, this particular first point. In Jesus' name, amen. Notice how he begins this letter. He says, the words of the Holy One. The very first thing, the very first aspect regarding the Lord Jesus. There are five things that I'd like us to see here, but the first one is that he is the Holy One. Ponder that for a moment. Jesus Christ, the Holy One. Distinct from all others. I believe 
without any shadow of a doubt that this title is nothing less than a direct claim to his deity. There can only be one holy God. And here he says that he is the holy one. Like the father, Jesus in his essence is holy and without sin. May I say to us this morning that this particular attribute is perhaps the most misunderstood and forgotten attribute of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider this. We enter December shortly and the world in a general sense gathers around uh, nativity scenes. Uh, They have Christmas plays. They have various other aspects that portray in some form or fashion uh, the Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as a baby. And there he is in the manger and the world looks on and is able to say with some sense of sincerity, what a cute baby. Uh, What a precious child he is. And yet they are not in the least bit aware of the holiness of this child. The holiness that then, when he grows to be a man, And dies upon a cross for the sins of those who would believe. Grows up to also be the judge. To be the holy one who will cast people headlong into hell. You say, well, that's a very, very sad uh, beginning to a message. But the reality is we have neglected to remember the holiness of Jesus Christ so often. The world as a whole has no idea of who Jesus Christ is. The world as a whole has no idea of his holiness, of his purity, of the fact that he will not uh, he will not be in the presence of sin in the final sense. In fact that it must depart from him, it cannot enter into his kingdom. This is the holy God. This is Jesus Christ. And when we read in Revelation chapter 4, we read about the beasts and those who are around the throne there and they are saying one thing constantly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Who was and who is and who is to come. And so before we note anything else, we need to note that this author of this letter is Jesus Christ the holy. And what should that do for us? That ought to help us understand just who he is, how separate and how distinct he is from all others and how outside of him we have no hope. Praise God, if you are a Christian here this morning, you have been granted all things that pertain to life and godliness and that is that you have been made holy because he is holy. Jesus is The Holy One. And he begins this letter by saying just that. The words of the Holy One. And so that's the first characteristic of Christ. But the second, he says, is that he is the true one in this text. The words of the Holy One and the true one. Jesus Christ is the fountain of all truth. What he says does not contain truth. It is truth. He is truth. He cannot lie. And from him all truth proceeds. We live in a world of shadows. We live in a world of lies and uncertainty. Jesus alone is the light and the truth He can be trusted in all that he says and all that he is. It was the Apostle John who writes in uh, chapter 1, verse 17, For the law was given through Moses. You all know that, he says to the people. The law was given through Moses. We know that fact. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It was the Lord Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth. And the life, no one can have access to the Father except it comes by me. This is Jesus who is the true one. And then we see thirdly in the characteristics of Christ, he's not simply the holy one. He's not only the true one, but then thirdly and interestingly, he is the keeper of the keys and the doors. He's the keeper of the keys and the doors. Have a look here in our text. 
Interesting portion of scripture, not something we read very often. It says he's the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. And then in verse 8, he says to the church, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. This is an interesting title for the Lord Jesus. We're familiar with the Holy One. We're familiar with the true one. But here he is, the keeper of the keys and the doors. Now, if, uh, if you have a Bible that has uh, a margin in it or cross-references, you might note in there that it takes you to Isaiah 22, verses 20 to 23. The Lord Jesus was quoting here from the Old Testament. And this is what that portion says. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him. And will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Interestingly, here in the Old Testament, we have a prophecy that has a direct a ramification there in Isaiah, but it also has another meaning dealing with the Lord Jesus much, much later on in time. And uh, when, when the Lord Jesus here says he has the key of David, we need to understand that what he's saying there is that David was a representative type of Jesus Christ as the king of Israel, residing in a palace, and that he had the key to that palace and had all regal or majestic authority what is the lord jesus saying here to this church he's not just simply saying that i have the keys of david and i have this and i have that he is saying that he asserts himself as the one who has authority to admit or deny people from entering into his church this is jesus christ with all authority that has been given to him as the sovereign king over salvation he opens and he closes doors you know how we often pray or at least i grew up hearing people pray things like lord we pray you'd open the door we pray you would do this Uh, i i went to a church my wife went to a church called open door baptist church this is where it comes from in the bible open door Uh, the lord opens doors of hearts that he may enter in and he closes doors of hearts and he does not allow uh, certain uh, individuals and people uh, entrance into his church he is in control of his church he is in control of salvation and this particular description which is a unique description stresses christ's omnipotence his all power what he does cannot be overturned by another In fact, if you take your Bibles, we won't turn there. But if you went to Isaiah 43 and verse 13, you would read. Yea, since the day was uh, since the day was, I am he and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I work and who can hinder it? We are dealing with a sovereign, all powerful God. And it is this Jesus who says, I have the key of David. And I open and no one can shut and I shut and no one can open. What a precious thought about the Lord Jesus. And then fourthly, we see here in verse number eight, another designation, uh, another characteristic. He says, I know your works. We've seen this all throughout all the letters. Here we have the all knowing and all seeing savior. I know your works. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4 and verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. As you sit here this morning, as I stand here this morning, Jesus Christ is acutely aware of absolutely everything in our life. All that has crossed our mind, All that our heart has devised, all of our plans, all of our motives, every single aspect of our character is before him. That is both a blessed and a bitter thought 
Bitter in that our sin is seen by him in every way. Blessed in that all of the prejudices and the hardships and the temptations and the trials that befall us, he is aware of and empathizes with us over that. We have an omniscient, all-seeing, all-knowing saviour. Completely familiar with our heartaches and our burdens and our cares. He knows the secret sins and the treasures of our heart and the motive of our service. But consider this for a moment. The Lord Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, I know your works, I know everything about you. And yet I have nothing, nothing negative to say to you. Wow. I want to be a part of Philadelphia Baptist Church. This is, this is a church that the Lord Jesus, in every other letter, bar Smyrna only, we read that there are things going wrong and you're entertaining this and you're doing this wrong. and so But here, the Lord Jesus knows everything about this church and the next statement we're used to saying, but I have this against you. But he doesn't say that. He says, I know your works. And he continues with the commendations. What a thought. What a glorious thought that the head of the church should be pleased with all the operations and the ministries and the hearts of those who serve would to God that that would be our legacy. We're not saying Philadelphia was sinless. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that the general direction of that church as a whole was one that was Christ honoring. What a blessed thought. And my prayer as I considered that very thought was may the Lord say that of us. May the Lord look upon us and, uh, and see within us our, our hearts, that our hearts are in desire of him and in pursuit of him. And our ministries are Christ-centric and our preaching is Christ-centric and our songs of praise are Christ-centric so that he might say, I know your works and I'm pleased with them. I'm pleased with them. What a great testimony. This is the all-knowing, all-seeing saviour. But then fifthly, we see also under this uh, major point of the characteristics of Christ, that he is the dispenser of ministry and service. Something you might not have seen before in verse number eight, certainly something I hadn't noticed as well as I have now. In verse number eight, the dispenser of ministry and service, he says, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, you have to do some digging and some research and some study to say, well, what is the open door that you've put before this church, Lord Jesus? What are you referring to here? This open door that no one's going to be able to shut because you've opened it. And I believe, I believe that the sense here that the Lord Jesus is saying to the church here at Philadelphia is that he has given them the privilege to proclaim and dispense the gospel message. Sovereignly. Jesus had set before this church the opportunity to preach the gospel and see a harvest of souls. He says, I've opened the door. I've opened it wide and nobody's going to close this door. You are going to have an impact and an influence on your society and your culture. And that is my doing, Jesus says. An open door. Wow. That brings a whole new meaning to it. That it's the Lord who opens the door. It's the Lord who bids in that harvest to come forth. We are simply messengers and ambassadors in that ministry. But it's God who opens the door. We see that right throughout the book of Acts where God opened the hearts of people. And may I say to us that it is a sad reality today that there are many open doors to which the church does not go through. There are many doors that the Lord has opened and God's people are distracted from the calling, the primary occupation to preach the gospel. And here we see that Jesus is the dispenser of the ministry and the service. He opens the door. Now, lest we, uh, lest we get this out of order or we misunderstand, we know from the Bible that God has sovereignly elected and appointed those who would come into his kingdom. That's none of our business who and how that occurs fully. But we do know this, that our failure in evangelism is not to the point that those people will not be saved, but to the point that we will have lost the privilege of leading them to Christ. 
That's the sad reality. An open door is before us. And would to God that we would be obedient to preach the gospel, that we might be able to rejoice with the angels on high at one soul that is saved. What a privilege and a pleasure that would be as a Christian. But should we fail to go through that open door and bid the sinner to come in, it is our loss, not theirs. They'll be saved, but it won't be the blessing of our ministry to them. And so we need not to be fear or grief stricken by the thought that we have totally missed an opportunity and somehow have prevented the will of God happening, but rather that we should be grief stricken at the thought of missing out on the privilege of leading one to Christ. An open door. And Paul said, didn't he, in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 9, a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. May I say to us, church, there is a wide door open. A wide door open in this community, in the communities from which you come. A wide door. Now, and by that, I don't mean in a prophetic sense that I know people are going to get saved. We may spend our whole day preaching the gospel and never see a soul saved. But we still have a wide door of opportunity by which we must enter and preach the gospel. That's our responsibility as a church. Evangelism is critical to our ministry for Christ. And here they had... A great and an open door which nobody could shut. That's great. But then we move on to our second major point. Not just the characteristics of Christ but now the commendation of Christ. Look at what he says here in verse number 8. I know that you have but little power and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. We see this commendation of Christ seen in several ways. The first thing I want you to see here is that the church at Philadelphia was small physically, but enlarged spiritually. Small physically, but enlarged spiritually. When you take out your Greek Bible and you look there at the words being used here in the original, and it says here, unfortunately, in one sense, you have but little power. It seems to me that from uh, other translations, that perhaps doesn't give us the sense of the word as much as it ought to. The point here is the little power is not speaking of influence or spiritual ability. It's speaking of numbers. Numerically, you have limited resources in people and in finance. You are taxed to the nth degree uh, because of the rebuilding. You're a church in poverty. You don't have a huge amount of that which to offer physically. But that's not a that's not a negative. That's a commendation from the Lord Jesus. He says you are small physically, but you are empowered spiritually. We need to remember that it's never about numbers. It's never about finances. It's never about large buildings. It's never about glamour. It's never about prestige. None of those things are what matter to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are not the measure of success. Because it was a handful of disciples that changed the world. It was a few committed reformers, as we learnt last month, who brought about a revolution in the Christian realm. It was a few faithful pastors and evangelists that God used to bring about mass revival. It's not about the numbers. In fact, the Lord Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so here we are, a country church in Alexandra, and here we are with limited resources and finances presently as a church, but none of that matters. That is not the key. That's not the key to success by any means. We may be small physically, numerically, but that does not mean that God will not use us in a great way if we will continue to walk with him as did this church. The Lord Jesus was completely aware of their physical and financial situation. He knew they were small, but that did not stop him opening a great door of influence to them. Would to God that he would open to us as a small church a great door of influence. So they were small physically, but they were enlarged spiritually. And then secondly, we see that they were obedient. We see here in this text that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
this little assembly up there in the hills of Philadelphia were obedient. They were marked by their obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. And the wording seems to indicate here that this church had experienced some form of persecution. And it seems to be that at this particular time in writing that some of them may have been dragged before the magistrates and the Jewish leaders of those days. uh, And uh, they had been called upon to recant of their faith. And here it says, the Lord Jesus says, you have kept my word and not denied my name. Which means they had an opportunity to. They had an opportunity to deny the name of Christ, but instead of that, they remained faithful and true to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were Christians who were obedient to the end, even if it cost them their lives. I know that I say this very regularly here in our assembly, but there is a time coming, and I believe it's in our life, where we will be called upon to recant, where we will be called upon by this culture to turn away from the name of Christ. And I believe if that day does come, that there will be a sorting of the church. There will be a sorting of those who are saying, no matter the cost, I am Christ's. Take my head, take my life. It does not bother me whatsoever because I will not, I will not recant. And then there are those who would say, It doesn't matter that much to me at all. There will be a sorting. And I believe it is coming quickly in our generation. And here we have a church that was obedient, willing all the way to the end to not deny the name of Christ. And so there's great commendation, not condemnation, commendation from Christ. And then thirdly, I'd like you to see on the other side now, Not the commitment of the Christian, but now the commitments of Christ. Thirdly, the commitments of Christ. Beginning in verse number 10, we read. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. We see uh, a number of things here. And just before this particular verse, in verse number nine, the Lord Jesus also commits here, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. There's a number of promises given here in this particular text to the church at Philadelphia, the first of which is the promise of honor. The promise of honor. He says, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. History and biblically, we find that this church had withstood the attacks of the unbelieving Jews, otherwise called the synagogue of Satan. But one day, they would be honoured before Christ, this church. Now, Christ is not by any means inferring uh, that these people would come and worship the church, that they would bow down, like the, the scripture says here, before the church in order to worship the church. That's not the point here. That's not what he's saying at all. What he is saying is that they would come to submit and finally realize the truth about what this church has been teaching and saying, and they would, in that sense, bow down before those truths that this church had espoused. But the Lord Jesus does say that ultimate honor and praise will be given to God alone and that he will not share his glory with another. So the church here is not receiving the accolades or worship that is due to Christ. But what is happening is that these people who have denied the truth that this church has been teaching, they will one day bow the knee in recognition of the truth that has been said and taught. 
One day there will be justice. I don't know about you, but there are people who I have been witnessing and sharing my faith with for years and years and years. And some of them have spat in my face. Some of them have been so uh, opposed to these truths that at the end of it, you think, will anything ever change? This person doesn't want a thing to do with Jesus Christ. One day they will bow before his majesty when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, we don't say that out of anger, but we do say, praise God, justice is coming. There is a day that those who are so opposed to the truth of Christ, they will confess with their tongue and bow their knee, according to Philippians 2, before his majesty. It's coming. And the likes of the Richard Dawkins of our day who are seeking constantly to undermine the truth of God and uh, to cause a generation to turn towards atheism and other men in our generation who are that way inclined, they are one day going to take back everything they have ever said and say Jesus is Lord, not for salvation, but as their judge. Jesus is Lord. This church had tried to have an impact on the community and they, the synagogue of Satan, had been so opposed and riled up against them. But one day Jesus says, the honour will be yours. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. That ought to remind us in the efforts in evangelism, we don't do this for that person, we do this for Christ. Though we want that person to know Christ, it's not about that person primarily, but about Jesus Christ. And so the promise of honour. But then secondly, we see the promise of protection. He says here, I will keep you in verse 10 from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. This little church had already experienced immense persecution. But Jesus promises to protect them from the hour of trial which is coming upon the whole earth. Now, some commentators believe that this is in reference to the time of persecution when Emperor Trajan uh, comes along and and has severe uh, implications on the church, so much more severe than Nero and Domitian earlier. But I fail to see that as being the case because uh, that promise was not fulfilled. Several of their church members were martyred during that period of time and I would suggest to you that that was not a promise kept if that's what it was and we know that Jesus is a promise keeper. It would seem more fitting interpretation wise to see this as the coming of the great tribulation in due course and that the Lord Jesus would protect this church from that coming time. Some suggest that this text is proof that the church will not enter into the tribulation, but will be raptured before it commences. Whatever the Lord Jesus meant here exactly, we know one thing for sure. He promised protection upon this church. He promised that he would protect them from the hour of trial that was coming upon the whole world. A great promise. And then thirdly, we see the promise of Christ's return. He says here, I am coming soon, in verse 11. You know, it's interesting, I was uh, reminded of a statistic I once did a study on in the scriptures, and that is that uh, for the first, for all the references in the Old Testament of Christ's first return, there are 13 of Christ's second return. So if you take all of the references in the Old Testament that relate to Jesus coming as the Messiah, for every one of those, there is 13 that relate to his second coming. And I believe that statistic's about right. I haven't redone this study lately. Whatever the case, it is a large, large number more of his second coming. And here we have the promise of Christ's return. Now, if you're like me, you would say things like, When the Lord Jesus says, I will return soon, well, obviously soon, my immediate thinking is a little bit different to the Lord Jesus. This is some 2,000 years ago and he hasn't returned yet. Well, soon is a little bit different. And I think Peter puts it well, uh, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. Now, we don't want to make that a big doctrine, but the truth there is how we view things is not how the Lord Jesus view things. And so our immediacy and our urgency is a little bit different to his But he does say this, I am coming again. 
Let me ask you this, church. This is a criticism of myself, first and foremost. When did you last stop and think that Jesus is coming again? I am embarrassed to say, as one who is called to teach and preach, I don't think I thought about it once this last week. Not even once. And yet the greatest reality and the greatest thought, surely in all the world for the Christian, is that Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming and he will set up his kingdom and I'm going to be a part of that kingdom and justice will once and for all be done and we will worship him, we will go to be with him and it will be the end of sin as we know it, of death, of hell, of all of these things will be dismissed from our presence and we will be with him forevermore and yet I didn't think about it once. In all the busyness of this life, so much is going on in my head and my temporal mindset has prohibited me from thinking about the one thing that really excites me. I'm going to see him again. Jesus is coming again. He makes a promise to his church. I will return soon. But we're so distracted. I'm so distracted You know, it's okay to be busy. There's nothing wrong with being busy, but it's a problem if you're busy and not thinking about Christ. It's a problem if you're doing all of these things, going to and fro and forgetting that the return of Christ is imminent. He is coming again. Are we ready? Are we prepared as that chaste bride ready to meet the groom? I'm coming again. The promise of Christ's return. But then I want you to see lastly, number four under this heading. The promise of permanence. The promise of permanence. Look at verse number 12. We see in this text as we draw to almost a close here. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. What's the point here? Why is the Lord Jesus saying these things to this church? I mean, in our natural sense, we say, well, who wants to be a pillar? Well, probably not many of us want to be a pillar in the natural sense. Okay, but here's what he's saying. And I think it's amazing when you think of it in the landscape of the backdrop of what we've already talked about. The one thing that Philadelphia did not have was stability. That place was marked by earthquakes, by shaking foundations. The Lord Jesus isn't saying you're literally going to be this pillar in the temple. He's saying you have experienced instability right throughout your church life. But the one thing you can be assured of is the permanency that you have in my kingdom. And it will never be shaken. You know shaking foundations, church. But there will never be a shaking foundation in heaven. And interestingly, he draws, I believe the Lord Jesus draws on a, uh, a picture that is found in other religions, which is interesting, whereby they would construct a very beautiful pillar in the midst of a temple towards their false deities. And on that pillar, they would inscribe the name of their gods. The Lord Jesus says, when you get to mine, you are going to bear my name. You're going to bear the name of the new Jerusalem and a secret name that nobody knows that is the Lord Jesus's. What a precious thought. I'm going to be a pillar. I am going to be forevermore in his presence. This church can say no more shaking, no more rebuilding. I'm his forevermore. It's permanent. And my name, his name is written upon this pillar in the new Jerusalem. What a precious, precious promise. I love how the Lord Jesus meets them right at their need. See, we wouldn't see this. We wouldn't understand this. We're not living on a mountain where every five five minutes the place gets uh, rocked on an earthquake. But here the Lord Jesus says, this is for you, church. Specific and a specific promise to a specific situation. The promise of permanence. The last thing I would like us to see, and we've gone a little out of order intentionally is I want you to see not just the commendations of Christ, not just the commitments, but lastly, I want you to see the command of Christ. There is just one, just one given to this church. In other times, it's do this, do this, do this. You haven't done that right, get this right. He just says one thing. And we find this in verse number 11. 
Jesus says to Philadelphia, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Just one command. Hold fast. Persevere. Be strong. Don't quit. Don't give up. The battle's hard, Jesus says. I know it's hard. I empathize with that, the difficulties of your situation. But there's just one thing I want you to do. Hold fast. Don't let go. And what must they cling so tightly to? Well, the same things we need to. Here's some thoughts for us. Cling tightly to the truth that they affirm. They've been affirming the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Hang on to that. Don't let it go. Because when you let it go, the reward that is yours will be lost. Your salvation isn't lost, but your reward will be lost or minimized. The truth that they have affirmed, upholding Christ's name, do not let it go. Hang on for dear life. Secondly, what else must they cling so tightly to? The opportunity and privilege to evangelize and serve. God says, Jesus says, the door's open. I've opened it. Nobody's going to close this door. I've opened it for you. Hold on and go through it and keep on preaching the gospel. Have an impact on your generation. Don't quit doing that. Keep going. Cling tightly to it. Thirdly, what must they cling so tightly to? Obedience to the Lord. Here he says that you have kept my word in verse Number eight, what must I cling so tightly to? When all the shaking and shifting of sands is going on, when things are all out of control, I want you to uphold my name. I want you to keep preaching the gospel. I want you to keep Christ's word. Be obedient. You know, the most simple thing in the Christian life is that hymn we sing, simply trust and obey. Uh, That is the summary of the Christian life in one song. Trust in the Lord and obey him. Do those things and that's the whole of the Christian life in one wonderful little uh, piece of music. Trust and obey. And the Lord says, just be obedient. Keep being obedient. When the generation says, no, we're going to do this with marriage. When the generation says, we're going to move down this path. We say, no, we're going to be obedient. We're not going to let that determine what we're supposed to do. We're going to be obedient. To the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, what else must they cling so tightly to? The truth they affirm, the privilege to witness and evangelize, obedience to the Lord, and then lastly, faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Commitment despite persecution. No matter what may occur, no matter what circumstances and tribulations and trials occur, no matter whether people come in here like they did just a week ago and start shooting people in the midst of our church, imagine that situation. Imagine being in America when that should occur. Imagine being in Middle Eastern countries where your head is being taken off because you uphold the name of Christ. Be faithful to him. Be faithful to him. He says, cling on, hold on, don't quit, keep going, because there is a reward for your service. He says, be faithful to Jesus. Commitment despite persecution. Hold fast what you have. Don't let it go. And so, by way of application, as we close this morning, Philadelphia was a model church. I'm so glad they're in here because we can look here and we can say, I want to be like that. I want to be like that church. I want to be like Smyrna. I want to have uh, a church body that is just like this. And we look at these and we say, wow, what a, what a praiseworthy church. But they honored the Lord in all that they did. The Lord was critical of nothing. That's amazing. And my prayer, and I trust yours is, is that we might be like them. That this small assembly... In the middle of nowhere, geographically speaking, not a huge number in comparison to others, not mammoth finances in the bank, hardly any at all. In fact, this last week, um, that we would be like Philadelphia, that God would open the door and that we would 
be busy and serving and focused on what matters and awaiting his return and holding fast to what matters. That we would operate with obedience and faithfulness in the place of persecution. May that be our prayer. It's certainly mine. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this church at Philadelphia. Thank you for the model that we see set here in the pages of Scripture. Uh, Lord, we desire uh, to be a church that honours you in every sense. Lord, we are filled with flaws and failures and sin that often besets us. And and we know that every church is like that, Philadelphia included. But Lord, the direction of that church and their constant walking with you uh, meant that when you sent them a letter, it was a letter of commendation and encouragement and command to keep on going. Lord, we need the same. I need the same. Help us to cling so tightly to those things that, that matter, that are that cannot be dispensed with. Uh, And Lord, uh, for them, in their physical shakiness, literally, with earthquakes and instability, you made a promise to them that they would have stability for all eternity. And we thank you that that promise is true for us too. That though the shaking grounds of this cultural landscape are before us and though many things are changing around us we can be assured of the fact that your kingdom is coming and it is unshakable Uh, and our king cannot be overthrown uh, and that we have the privilege of being loyal subjects for all eternity we long for that day we look forward to seeing you face to face to see you as you are to know you in a greater sense than what we know now. And Lord, we say with the Apostle John, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly. And uh, until that day should come, we are thankful that we can sing this last song together that reminds us that we have an anchor in the storms of life. When things become so hard and difficult and we don't know the way forward, you are with us in the boat. You are our anchor in the storms of life. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.